That feeling of cozy comfort that comes from sharing food and drink with friends, loved ones, and family is creating a longing in so many of us during this period of pandemic and isolation. How do we cope and what do we cook and eat during this time to compensate for this loss? Well, Dr. Lucy Long is exploring this very question. Join me as we explore it with her. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Dr. Lucy Long is the founder and director of the Center for Food and Culture. She has taught and studied foodways as well as worked in museums for her whole career. With the varied background that she has, she brings a multidisciplinary approach to the exploration of food and culture. She has written numerous books and articles, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the things I want to start talking about is the problems that I know that I had as a, a person deciding what to study and how to study whatever my field was going to be. And I think you may have experienced something similar. And that was that when I was in school, now, mind you, I started college in 1967. So this was quite a while ago. There was no such thing as food studies. And if you wanted to study food as an academic discipline, the only thing that was available was to become a dietitian or perhaps to study um, home economics. And that was not something I was interested in. And so I wound up, of course, getting a degree in English and then going to law school because I don't think anybody who goes to law school really says, I want to be a lawyer. I think they really say, I don't know what to do, so I'll go to law school. I wondered about your experience. Right. Uh, I think... Now, the, the trajectory or the journey of, of my food studies is extremely unusual, but it also gives me a perspective that is drawing upon many, many different disciplines and experiences. So, um, so well, first, I always, I always kind of like to say that I'm bicultural because my mother is from the Piedmont of North Carolina. Um, this is plantation country and then textile factory country. And my father is from the Appalachian Mountains of Western North Carolina. So I was very, very aware when I was a kid, you know, my country club cousins would make fun of my hillbilly cousins and vice versa. Um, you know, so I was very aware of, of different cultures. And then we moved overseas with my father, who became um, an economic, he was, he was an economist for the State Department and worked primarily in Far East and Southeast Asia. Um, okay, so with those experiences, I was very aware of 
cultural differences. Plus, I come from the South. I love to eat. <laughs> my my grandmother's Sunday dinner. I mean, that's you know, I still think back on that. Oh, it was so just so wonderful. Um, and, and this is this is a white Southern, um, you know, which which opens up a whole other can of worms. But um, you know, so I was always I always thought I would do something in music because I loved listening to music and I I studied music. I was never good as a classical musician. I couldn't sing. I couldn't really play the piano. So I didn't know what I would do. Um, and so after, after dropping out of college and kind of floundering around for a little while, I, I happened at the Smithsonian Institution. They, they have a folk life festival every summer and they had people presenting music traditions, you know, which is what drew me at first. And then they were also presenting food traditions. And it had never occurred to me that food could be used to really talk about culture and that there was really more to it. You know, you know, growing up, I loved to eat. I hated to cook. I did not want to be in the kitchen. My brothers got to run around and play outside. I didn't see why I had to be in the kitchen. <laughs> right. So, you know, so, so it never really occurred to me that there was more to cooking, you know, than, you know, than, than just women's labor, you know, and it's pretty involuntary. <laughs> so, you know, so, so that, that, and it kind of woke in me the idea, oh, yeah, you can do stuff with food. You can actually study food beyond just how to cook, you know, or the most gourmet, you know, what's the best restaurant. Um, so in college, I, 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 studied, I studied philosophy and music, uh, the great philosophy of aesthetics. Um, it kind of you know, varied things. I actually went to Davidson College. So I say that because... You would, Southerners usually know Davidson College. Um, and then I did a master's in ethnic musicology and focused on the music of Southern Appalachia, fiddle and dulcimer, um, and, and then also on the music of Far East and Southeast Asia. And, and then I found what I was really interested in was the people. You know, why, why do people do these things? Why did, what did these traditions mean to people? You know, why do they keep doing them? They, they didn't have to. You know, we didn't have to eat bread just because they lived in the South. <laughs> you know, why did we have bread so much? You know, why, why did we have slices? You know, beyond just it tastes good. Um, and I, I started discovering, and this goes back to the Smithsonian Folklife Festival, discovering that the field of folklore tended to deal with those kinds of questions. And and from a personal perspective. You know, so why did these particular individuals find this particular tradition meaningful? Um so that you know that approach I found very appealing. Um so I Let's see, I did, I did an internship at the, um, I'm trying to remember what it's called now, Enlis, the 
at the Southern Folklife Center that Bill Ferris started this before he started um, the Oxford um, Southern Studies. The Southern Foodways Alliance. He he created the Center for the Study of the South at yeah at at Ole Miss. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And this was something he started this prior to that. Um, and he was working with Judy Pizer, who I'm I'm not sure she's still the director or not. And and, and this was it was meant to be a place where um, people were documenting traditions of the South and then developing programs um, around that documentation. So I actually did an internship there for a year, and or you know, for, for six months. And one of the things I did was I looked at ethnic foodways in Memphis. And you know, they, they, they thought it would be interesting. I suggested, well, you know, Chinese restaurants in the South, you know, that's, that, that's not something people usually think about. So, you know, let's do a, an oral history, a, a documentation of, um, of Chinese restaurants. I think there were seven listed in the phone books. So, you know, so they said, okay, go to these. We'll pay for you to have a meal and talk about the food. Well, it turned out there were actually about 37. <laughs> mm, they just weren't listed in the phone book, right? Yes, yes. A lot of them, a lot of them listed as Chinese. Um, you know, some, some of them were, they were just diners. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, and they, you know, so they, and then they, they also had a Chinese section. They were diners either being run by a Chinese family, um, you know, or it'd be a different type, and then there'd be one section of some Chinese food. So, so it was fascinating. And, you know, that, that really introduced me into the field of, of food studies from a folklore perspective. And, and then when I started graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania, um, Don Goda was one of my professors. And... Folklore had, you know, particularly in, under Don Yoder, um, they had long been studying, studying foodways as a traditional, you know, folk life of, of different people. Um, and then in the 60s and 70s, folklore started looking at how food was used to express identity, how it was being used to, um, to delineate, define community. So particularly ethnic food, you can use that to say who is ethnic <laughs> and what does it mean to be a certain ethnicity according to the food that you're using. So it was it was a very active approach to food as something very dynamic that people were using to express themselves, to build community, you know, to um, affirm relationships. So, so so that's, that's what I was getting in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. And, and it was, this was, let's see, I was there um, in the early 1980s. And, and as it was so fully accepted there, um, although it wasn't seen as, as a highly theoretical domain. <laughs> right. 
still kind of continues to today. And people say, well, there's interesting, but there's not high theory coming out of these studies. Yeah, it's really interesting you know? to me that people can study music on many, many different levels, and it can be highly theoretical, and people can write really deep criticisms, et cetera, on, about music, as well as teach people to play, as well as then study the cultural phenomenon of people who make music and listen to music. They haven't been able to make a corresponding kind of group of studies for food. Somehow, the actually making food and um, studying food as something that has real critical value has just never been really understood beyond things like Top Chef or um, Iron Chef or one of those things, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, you know there's, there, there actually is a wonderful body of scholarship now you know, on, on critical, uh, critical food studies. Um, you know, but, but I think, you know, part of what, part of what happens, um, you know, food is still considered a women's domain. Yes. Unless you're making tons of money, you know, as, as a chef, and then, then it can be male. <laughs> right. Um, you know, and, and serious study of food is, or serious attention to food is always tended to be on gourmet food. And, and the rest of was, um, you know, so, so, so then, it's then both dismissed as female and domestic and, and, and mundane. You know, everybody eats, you know, so how special can food be if everybody can do it? Right. <laughs> right. It's, yes. it's a very elitist approach to it. Um, so, you know, you know, part of what started happening, so I started getting involved in the Association for the Study of Food and Society that was in the mid 1990s, and you know there were there were about eight or nine of us who were coming coming out of humanities disciplines, you know, philosophy and history, English, American studies. Um, you know, so we, we all knew each other. We were all very supportive. Um, and then that started growing, and that has turned into what I consider to be, you know, the, the, the major scholarly society on music and on, on food. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's happening with the Southern Foodways Alliance, a lot of excellent scholarship there also, you know, but the emphasis there has, has been a little bit different. Right, um, right. You know, but unfortunately, part of what happened in with the recession in 2008, universities had to be able to sell their courses and their programs. So all the food studies programs started shifting from the more humanities-based, folklore-based, you know, and, and really using a lot of that early scholarship from, from folklore. Um, you know, it was coming out from, from the 60s and 70s. It's very shifting to food systems research. Right. Yeah. So, you know, how how do we how do we improve access? You know, how do we um, deal with with organic 
versus non-organic. You know, so it's a very specific question. And, and, and looking for solutions to the sort of food system issues. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so that, you know, and, and, and food studies now is kind of separated into those two areas. Right, right, and and I I see that you started the the center about a year before the Southern Food and Beverage Museum opened, and so I know that you've been kind of working in the same time period in terms of the center. I'm talking about your mm-hmm. center, the Center for Food and Culture. So that's that also has been of, of interest to me, just kind of that parallelism of time. Not not necessarily doing the same exact things, but in in the same field. So speak, mm-hmm. yeah. speaking of yeah. that, I do want to be able to have the time to talk a little bit about your study right now. So why don't you tell yeah. us about that and how you uh, decided that that's what we needed to study? Okay, okay. Um, so the title. The title of our project is Finding Comfort Slash Discomfort Through Food Ways During the Pandemic. And the, the idea came to me in 2017. I, um, I collaborated with a food, a food scholar, both with Michael Owen Jones, who's now retired out in California, and we published a section on comfort food. And it's all from a folkloristic humanity um, cultural perspective. You know, so so that got me interested in the idea of comfort food. Um, and you know, coming from the south too, it kind of occurred to me, well, does it all food comfort food? Or shouldn't all food be comfort food? <laughs> you know, so um you know, so that that's one of the questions that, that I was asking, you know. Um so that because I've done that book, comfort food was kind of on my radar. And very quickly after the pandemic, after the American public became aware of COVID and shutdowns started, there, there started being articles about comfort food in popular media and in the news media. And so there were articles on things like, um, you know, how the favorite comfort foods of favorite chef or a famous chef. Um, and then it would give recipes for the things that would not be particularly comforting to anyone else and that frequently were calling for ingredients that were just would not be available. You know, and would would not be in most people's pantries. Um, you know, so I started realizing well you know, it might be fun to make these recipes, but then someone has to go shopping. And shopping is a scary activity right now. Um, and then there's all this stuff coming out on baking, and then there are yeast shortages and flour shortages. And that this is in a country that that had, had been having um, the trend away from from bread and products that might have gluten, and all of a sudden, it's like, what happened to all the gluten? And, <laughs> and even if it wasn't gluten, it was carbs. So, you know, it was one thing or another. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, so, 
so I started looking at this and I realized you know that um just, you know and, and I was reading comments too from some people on Facebook to some of these articles. Yeah, and just listening and you know, talking to my friends and neighbors. Um, I, I started realizing several things. You know, that that people are starting to they're starting to recognize without realizing it the concept of cultural relativism when it changes comfort food. You know, that you know, that what is comforting to one person might not be comforting to another person. It's gonna be relative to each person experiences, their personality, uh, their their own value system. And also And I would also I would also add that sometimes what you need to comfort you at sometimes is different than the kinds of comfort you need at other times. So it's also relative individually depending on your circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which you know, which which fits very nicely into critical theory. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so right right into into performance theory that you know that you can only understand meaning if you're looking at specific context in which people are acting. So yeah, so that's that that's very, very important. So you know, I I, I talked to numerous people who said, well, you know, they they actually were eating a lot better because they were they were very afraid of getting sick. So they were watching their diet more than they usually did. And you know, so they were they were cutting out sweets. They were cutting out very fattening foods. So they didn't take it, they did not want to take any chances of getting sick. And you know, so which is kind of the opposite of what a lot of people were saying you know, there are a lot of jokes now about you know people that gained the quarantine fifteen or the they, you know they they gained the COVID nineteen you know talking about eating fattening comfort foods and gaining weight um, you know so so people's individual circumstances definitely make a huge difference. So let me ask you on a personal level, what are your comfort foods? Well, let's see. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Taking it out of the realm, taking it out of the realm of theoretical (laughs) and uh, making it personal. (laughs) Right, I know, I know, and you know, I, I'm laughing as I say that because that's such a stereotype. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but but it is. um, Well, no, growing up. I always had, we always had grits for breakfast. And it was kind of, it was my mother's food in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. And I didn't find out until later that with my father, we have fried hominy. Uh-huh. And he, he also, he also liked grits and, and he would make grits. You know, but I also grew up on fried hominy. I didn't realize later on, you know, that that was more the mountain tradition when you know, that was interesting probably by the Cherokee and has this long, long heritage coming from Central America. Um, you know, so I would say harmony and uh-huh. grits. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and you fry your harmony? You fry your harmony? So, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, 
and my my father, and then we were just open a can of harmony, and um, and then kind of fry it up like you would you would fry corn. Uh, and so did you um, use bacon fat or what did you use to fry it with? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I remember, I remember particularly in my, my aunt who lived in the mountains and I, I spent a lot of time with her. She lived up in Ash County, West Jefferson, and she always had a frying pan full of grease and a bacon grease. And if anyone needed a fried egg or anything at all, you know, she just heat that up, and it'd be it'd be like a deep fryer. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> put it in. You know, so so for the harmony, you know, it'd be it'd be fried in that grease. I I tend to make it now, with, um, you know, with with onion. And they they would usually eat it with raw onion. Uh huh. And they always had a lot of greens. Um, lots of collard greens, too. You know, so I, I usually put in uh, either some greens, that kale is wonderful, uh, a little bit of green pepper, red pepper, onion, lots of onion. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 Oh, well, that sounds really, really good. My comfort food is mostly pasta because I'm half Sicilian, oh. and so pasta was every day, you know. And uh, so mm-hmm. we all have... We all have our, our comfort foods, and they so often are very starchy, but who cares, right? <laughs> I, I know, I know. You know, and, you know, part of, I think part of why the whole concept of comfort food resonates with so many, so many Americans, so many of us, is we have been told over and over again that, oh, these foods are unhealthy. And... It's not that they're unhealthy. It's not that pasta is unhealthy, you know, or that grits is unhealthy. But it, that's all you eat, and that you eat massive amounts. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. Yeah. you know, so if we say, oh, it's comfort food, then it kind of works us off the hook. Uh-huh. We're allowed to eat because we need that comfort. Yeah. So, you know, which, which to me also reflects the American tendency to kind of put things in silos. So we think of food in terms of nutritional, physical health. We don't think of it in terms of emotional, social health. And, you know, so, you know, that's part of what the the food waste part of the the project is trying to get at. Right. You know, know, sometimes you need to eat that piece of cake well, and and, all, and also we have the 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 tendency to deconstruct so that now it's not even food. It's like, oh, you need to get vitamin A, or you need to get this micronutrient, or whatever. And nobody just says, well, if you have live live vinegar. It's going to give you whatever. So we're going to take a pill to get those probiotics instead of just eating the food that's around us that contains it. Exactly, exactly. You know, and that's what that's what Michael Pollan um, he he coined the term nutritionism. You uh-huh. talk about the, the American the, the tendency for Americans to approach food simply as. Packages of nutrients, 
you know, rather than uh, an incredible cultural, social product. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, you know, I, I came, I, I, I was born in New Orleans and grew up here, and Nobody thinks nobody thinks of food as a package of nutritional product here. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh. I know. Well, and you know that, that was the other thing that I thought was interesting about the concept of comfort food because it was frequently applied to Southern food as a whole. But, oh, the Southern food is comfort food, uh-huh. and it was kind of a way, in some ways, to kind of kind of a way to dismiss it, but also meant, well, you can eat as much of this as you want to, <laughs> because it's a cultural icon, and, you know, but we all know the place of Southern areas are kind of backwards, and, you know, they're cute, you know, but <laughs> kind of backwards. <laughs> They'll pat us over the head and just kind of tolerate us, yes, yes. Yeah, 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 as, as, long, as long as we're were colorful and entertaining. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so Lucy, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's been fun exploring these things with you. Thanks for joining me today, listening to Tip of the Tongue. We are part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. Come and visit us at our studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. We are open again. You can find us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.